Welcome to this episode of Out of the Best Books, the podcast where we deep dive into classic literature and have conversations about what we've learned and discovered along the way. We love all things books and reading, and we want to share our love of the classics with you. We hope to inspire you to read along with us and join in the conversation. I'm Laura. And I'm Amity. Let's get started. Hey, this is our second episode, diving into Pride and Prejudice, and we're so excited to have Nan back with us. Since she's a teacher, we decided summers we're going to grab her. Yeah, <laughs> seriously, and it's been it's been such a good journey so far. There's been so many insights and things that she's taught me as we've gone along so far, and I sort of have a list of questions that I'm going to be asking, so <laughs> now I hope you're ready, because <laughs> there's just some things that when you read older literature you you just like you're like okay kind of accept it and you go along but then you go but what does that actually mean like why did they do it that way I'll bring it up as we go along I love it because I feel like like this morning I was like I'm looking forward to this I get to just sit back and learn from you guys so and each time we do this it's just going to help me more with the next section that I read it'll be great I did want to say like I kind of had to force myself to stop at chapter 23. I'm so into it that I'm like, oh my gosh, I love this so much more than I've ever loved it before. Like just slowing down and taking time. But for my brain capacity, I don't think, I was like, I don't think I should go beyond chapter 23 right now or like, that's what I'll be thinking about too. So I love it. It's wonderful. Okay. So last week we ran kind of long. And then what I don't remember is did we actually introduce Mr. Collins with chapter 12? Because yeah. I have chapters 13 and 14 this week. We did get through where we introduced Mr. Collins, right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. That's a great stopping point because in our first chapters, we see the Bingleys are introduced, the Bennets are introduced, and Mr. Darcy's introduced. So we kind of have our central cast of characters. And in these next 10 chapters, the ones we do today, we're really going to be looking at two major characters that get introduced are Mr. Collins and Mr. Wickham. So as we move forward into this section of the book, as Miss Bennett said, you know, their neighborhood's not entirely limited. Bingley and Darcy aren't the only two eligible-ish men cruising the neighborhood. As we move forward, that's who we're really going to be looking at. So as we introduce Mr. Collins, in chapter 13, he is going to show up at the house we realize that Mr. Bennett has known that Mr. Collins is coming to visit, but he didn't really tell his wife. He sort of announces at breakfast, I hope you've set a really good table today because we have a visitor coming. At first, she's pretty upset that he is coming because she thinks it's going to be Mr. Bingley, but because it's Mr. Collins who she hates because of the fact that all of their property is entailed to him. Thinking about this a little bit, my understanding of an entailment basically means that the property and the house has to all stay together, and that can only go through the male line. And Mr. Collins is a rather distant cousin. Now, we're not entirely unfamiliar with this, any Downton Abbey fans out there. We know that this is kind of the central uh, plot point as the, the show Downton Abbey begins, is that the daughters in Downton Abbey, it's a family of girls, and their property ends up going to their distant cousin Matthew after their close cousin, who they thought was going to inherit, dies in the sinking of the Titanic. And so that is a whole thing around that. And then this distant relative comes in who doesn't know anything about the land or the property, and it's all going to be gifted to him. And that's the same way with Mr. Collins. 
And he's a distant enough cousin that even though Mr. Bennett and his wife have been married a long time, upwards of 20 years, his wife has never actually met Mr. Collins. It seems that even Mr. Bennett doesn't know him all that well. They've only been corresponding. So entailment, primogeniture, all of these things are kind of wrapped up together where it basically means a property and everything goes to the male line. Now, that doesn't mean that he can't leave some money to his wife and daughters. And that goes in the form of like marriage settlements and the amount that his wife is entitled to per year after his death. All of that is a little bit separate, but as far as the land and the property goes and the maintenance of that, that can only go through the male line. So the other thing that we get in chapter 13 is that we see Mr. Collins first um, introduces himself to the family in the form of a letter that Mr. Bennett reads out to his family. Again, we get this idea in Austin that this letter writing is a really, really important part of what they're doing. Mr. Bennett is extremely amused by this letter and reads it in its entirety because if there is any character that just really personifies absurdity in this book, it is definitely Mr. Collins. He's extremely, extremely self-important. He's so unself-aware that he has no idea how he's coming across to people. Anyway, we get this letter in its entirety, and then uh, Mr. Bennett is thoroughly amused by it. And Elizabeth makes the statement, he must be an oddity, I think, said she. I cannot make him out. There's something very pompous in his style. And what can he mean by apologizing for being next in the entail? We cannot suppose he would help it if he could. Could he be a sensible man, sir? And her father's response is, oh, no, my dear, I think not. I have great hopes of finding him quite the reverse. And so he's kind of hoping that Mr. Collins will keep him amused when he shows up because he is absurd. And again, we see this. Mr. Bennett now has somebody new to bait in the form of Mr. Collins when he arrives. The other side note I thought of here while I was going through and making my notes in my book, I'm always thinking of pop culture ways that Austin pops up. There's a movie, it's probably about 15 years old now, it's called The Lake House with um, Keanu Reeves and Sandra Bullock in it. That is actually meant to be, it's not, doesn't really follow the plot of persuasion, but that book is very central to that story and they fall in love through writing letters through this lake house and they don't ever meet and it's a very old-fashioned way of getting to know somebody and communicating in a very modern setting and I think that's a real homage to Austin not just in the like the the woman's favorite book and that story the lead character her favorite book is persuasion they pass a copy of it back and forth they find a way to do that in this kind of time travel warp that they're in, but it's really Austin-esque in the way that they are writing letters back and forth to one another, but they've never met. And there were a couple of other films I was thinking of that way, but we'll get to that later. They talk over breakfast that Mr. Collins is coming and they read his letter. And then in chapter 14, Mr. Collins does show up and there are some very, very funny interactions here. The other thing we learn about Mr. Collins is that he is kind of obsessed with the person that they call his patron. Now, the way patronage would have worked is that an owner of a large property, they were gifted that land at some point from the royal family, probably back generations and generations ago. And along with that, they're expected to provide for all of the well-being of the people that live on that estate. So they're able to make a profit off the land by selling things that people grow there, but they're also expected to provide employment, help to support and maintain, like usually there's some kind of a little village there. 
And then the other thing these large estates also are expected to do is they are expected to provide a clergyman for the local people. And so the wages of the clergyman will come from the wealth of the property itself. And this has been kind of controversial in recent times in England, is that there is actually still places where these churches are attached to these large estates. These estates, which are barely functioning as it is, are supposed to pay for the upkeep of these really, really old churches also. And not the Church of England, but it's actually like added to the estate. So Mr. Collins, when he talks about his patron being the Lady Catherine de Berg, she owns this land And then she basically pays his wage is how we think about this. And as a result, Lady Catherine seems very entitled to basically tell Mr. Collins what he should do. She basically sets the tone for his sermons. The reason he has come to Longburn is he's looking for a wife. And it's because Lady Catherine de Burke told him it was time to get married. Anyway, that's just kind of interesting that uh, Mr. Collins, you know, he's a man of the church, but in some ways it's really like, Lady Catherine that he's following into whatever she tells him to do. And that's kind of how that sort of worked out there. So one of the funny things he talks about is how he practices compliments ahead of time that he will like then give because he he's determined that this is what the ladies really, really like. You have to imagine this setting where this extremely awkward he's it's not that old he's 25 so he's not as old as he's actually portrayed sometimes in film versions but he is only 25 but he's this extremely awkward young man who's come to visit their home and he keeps making all these awkward comments and is really unaware of how awkward he is and then you have these five teenage daughters or young adult daughters three of whom are extremely silly or a couple of whom are very silly and he's trying to leave these compliments while Mr. Bennett all the time keeps baiting him and the wife hates him and so you can't imagine a more awkward family meal than this one and Mr. Bennett is just getting an enormous kick out of it Elizabeth knows what he's doing but she has to behave ladylike she wants very much to laugh at what her father is doing to this man but she knows it wouldn't be appropriate So that is kind of their interaction that they have over dinner there. The last thing I want to point out, too, about Mr. Collins' character is that in the evening, you know, people have to pass the time in some way. So they would read aloud to one another. So they asked Mr. Collins if he would like to read. Mr. Collins readily assented and a book was produced. But on beholding it, for everything announced it to be from a circulating library, He started back, begging pardon, protested that he never read novels. Kitty stared at him. Lydia exclaimed. Other books were produced, and after some deliberation, he chose Fordyce's sermons. Lydia gaped as he opened the volume, and before he had, with a very monotonous solemnity, read three pages, she interrupted him. He proceeds to sermonize for their entertainment in the evening, and then when Lydia interrupts him, she is asking about the regiment that's at Merton. So obviously she has not been paying attention. Mr. Collins is very offended by this. We're going to realize that part of the reason he, again, that he's come to Longbourn is to find a wife. And he is very quickly recognizing that the younger Bennett girls will not do for him. So, (laughs) which is unfortunate. Everybody in the world always thinks that he should have ended up with Mary. But in the end, he's too good for her though. I don't, I don't know. I think they kind of fit each other pretty well. Oh, and the- oh no, no, no. I think that he thinks he's too good for Oh, her, yeah. You know? Like, yes. yeah, I think they're like the perfect match, but yes. 
Yes. Yeah. And, you know, this is going to be very upsetting to Miss Bennett, as we'll realize, because what would save this whole situation is if Mr. Collins does marry one of the daughters, all the problems are solved. So this is very much Mrs. Bennett's goal. And she is completely indifferent to whether or not he's a ridiculous man, because she just sees him as an eligible bachelor who's connected to the estate. And in her mind, that is kind of all that matters. Because again, I guess happiness in marriage is entirely a matter of chance. As we go on, like Jane Austen writes it so cleverly and with a lot of humor, but there's also a lot of like very serious undertones, I think. Like I found as I was reading it this time, I was like, what a horrible position to be in. As a woman, you would feel so incredibly trapped, I think. And maybe that's all you know, it would be okay. I don't know. But I, I don't think that she felt like she was okay. Because I think that's probably part of the reason she wrote this was to be like, look at this damnable situation we all find ourselves in. We're desperate. And they really were. And a lot of times they would just settle for anything. And I think we'll probably talk about that more as we get into the story of Charlotte and everything. But Austin didn't want to get married. And so she was trying to support her family in the one way she could. And that was through her writing. But even she couldn't publish under her own name because yeah. it's an unacceptable career for a woman to have. It's almost like if she didn't laugh at the absurdity of all of it, there's nothing to do but just be sad, right? Yeah. And I think we've talked about different film versions. Again, this is one thing. I think the BBC is better at hitting a modern, not not the BBC, sorry, the Kiera Knightley version is better at kind of hitting people over the head with what they might be missing in Austin. And one of um, Lizzie's character in that one says to her mother at one point, is this all you ever think about? They were talking about marriage. And her mom said, says, you know, well, when you have five daughters, tell me if you think about anything else. You know, I guess in the same way that a modern mom would be concerned about whether or not her daughter gets into a good college or is thinking about a career path or I mean, in that way, we worry about our young adult children. It's just thankfully, if we have young adult daughters, they have more choices. So many more choices. And so in a lot of ways, I don't know if we can like even completely comprehend. And I think that that also makes Mrs. Bennett a much more sympathetic character because you go, no, she's looking at it and she's going, the options for my daughters are they either marry well or they're like out on their ear, you know, like there's not much hope and there's five of them. So of course she's very concerned. There's a lot of stuff that she misses and things she doesn't comprehend, but you have to kind of wonder if maybe that's because she's so consumed with worry and concern for her daughter. So I don't know. She's a fictional character, but I just, I think there's, there were probably a lot of moms that were very similar that way during that time period. So sisters to have to watch their brothers inherit everything and their only choices to end up in a marriage that may just be an arrangement. Well, their yeah. brothers have all the freedom and all the inheritance and can pretty much do what they want. And yes. the men always got married older and it was not seen as anything inappropriate if they, in fact, it was expected that they would kind of sow their wild oats for 10 or 15 years after they left school until they settled down sometime in there. Even Darcy settling down in his late twenties is maybe a little early on the early side for that. He may, part of the reason he may be feeling like he's in trouble from Elizabeth is he may not have even intended to be married for several years to come yet, because that was pretty typical. And the men could sort of do what they wanted. And and sometimes they ran these enormous fortunes into the ground. Yeah. They felt entitled to do so. It's pretty shocking. Okay. So Mr. Collins is getting paid by this Catherine, right? But the estate that he would inherit from Mr. Bennett isn't huge. Or it's not a lot of money, right? So would he keep getting paid from her? In the latter chapters that we're going to do today, they talk about Sir William Lucas and 
his wife who are super excited about what's going to happen because of the fortune that their daughter is going to get. And it's like, I thought it wasn't a ton of money or, you know what I mean? Cause they're way lower in income and class than these other people that we're talking about. Correct. Well, I think because there's property attached to it, part of the reason it's a fortune is that it's going to be income producing. So the girls' dowries are fixed attached to the estate because they can't continue to take money out of the estate. It's almost like it's put into a trust for the girls' dowries, like a set amount of money. Whereas if Mr. Collins inherits all of Longbourn and whatever land surrounds it, then there's potential there for that to be a money-making enterprise. And compared to where they thought Charlotte was going to end up, what he's going to have would be quite a fortune. Once he leaves, he would not continue to get paid from Lady Catherine de Bourgh. They'll say that a, oh, what's the phrase? It'll come up later, but basically it's that, they call it a living, that's what they call it. And this is a big deal in Sense and Sensibility the novel of I know Amity had mentioned reading that one is that the main male lead in that one is trying to find a place where he can get a living, which basically means that he would take over as the, the priest isn't the right word. He would, but it's like that he would air as the the minister. He would the take clergyman. Over, the clergyman. That's the word I'm looking for. He would take over as the clergyman for a certain area, and they call that like getting a living. So what would happen is that when Mister Bennett dies. Mr. Collins would leave the living that he has on Catherine de Bourgh's property and the house he's been in, and then he would move to Longburn, and then somebody else would be hired to fill that position. And it's always like, it was always a position of like, who you know. And that that's another thing that's kind of interesting about these three sort of main, I guess we would consider them the main suitors in the book. We have Wickham and Darcy and Collins, and they really represent the three professions that gentlemen could go into like Mr. Darcy is kind of a businessman gentleman that's one they could do that they could go into military service and if you didn't want to just like enter as a foot soldier and you wanted to enter as an officer you had to purchase your commission they call that you would actually have to buy your way into becoming an officer instead of a foot soldier and then the third way you could really make a living is to be a clergyman and so in families where there were three sons you would very often see that the oldest is the inheritor, you know, they call that the heir. And then the spares could either become clergymen or go to the military and place hold in case their brother passed away. It wasn't like the men had a lot of choices. This is a big deal in Downton Abbey is when they find this distant heir who's supposed to inherit all the property. They're horrified because he's an attorney. He's been working at a job. He's not even a gentleman because he's been employed. He's so middle class. <laughs> Yeah, which is, it's wild, isn't it? Just because our values have, what do I want to say, switched? <laughs> yes. We value the the hard work and the labor so much, but. Yes, yeah, the opposite. And, and in this culture, it was really looked down on to have to work. Yeah, just interesting. So in chapters 15 and 16, we find out that Mr. Collins plans to marry one of the Bennett sisters, which he thinks it's going to make up for the fact that He's taking their inheritance, basically. He privately tells Mrs. Bennett about his intentions, and she suggests that he focus on Elizabeth because she's hoping that Jane will end up with Mr. Bingley. And I and love so, how those are just interchangeable. Yes. It doesn't matter which one I fix my affections on because they're just girls. So who cares? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it said at some point that, and I don't know if I was reading this right, but that Elizabeth is her like least dearest child. Like mm -hmm. she yeah. just doesn't like her 
she's the lowest for her, whatever. I don't know, her least favorite. And Mr. Collins is very quick to switch to Elizabeth. So he is like, whatever, I don't care who I end up with. He's like a young teenage girl, right? That's like, oh, here's another boy. Let's just switch to that one. I don't care, you know? Anyways. Or a young teenage boy. <laughs> I haven't had much experience with young teenage boys. So, I mean, I was a young teenage girl, but... <laughs> And my young teenage boy didn't tell me anything. So, and I think the irony is here is these girls could not be more different. And he doesn't see or appreciate any of that. Equally next to Jane in birth and beauty. And so that's, that's it. It doesn't matter that they're totally different. Right. Exactly. So um, Mr. Collins and the Bennett sisters end up going on a walk to Meryton. They encounter Mr. Wickham, who remember is new and handsome. <laughs> and he's made a pretty good first impression on the girls. I, this reminds me of when like a boy moves into the neighborhood or the ward or whatever. And all the girls are like, new blood. Right. And then oh, about sure. in the water. In, like, oh, never mind. <laughs> this has happened. <laughs> so soon after meeting up with Mr. Wickham, then Bingley and Darcy come walking up the street and start talking to them. And Elizabeth notices this very strange interaction between Darcy and Wickham. And she is dying to know what the situation behind this is, how they must know each other. But they don't indicate anything. They, she can just tell from their interaction that there's something between them. So Mr. Collins and the Bennets continue going to Mrs. Phillips' house, which is where they're on their way to. And she invites them to dinner the next night and the girls convince her that they have to invite Mr. Wickham. So at dinner the next evening, this is chapter 16, Elizabeth is obsessed, what's the word, like enthralled with Mr. Wickham. She's like deep in conversation with him. She's enjoying his company. And that's when Wickham asks about Darcy. And she tells him, but people don't really like him because he's prideful. Like they're, they're not that impressed. Mr. Wickham says, I'm going to just hold my tongue. Well, first of all, he has a really good relationship with Darcy's father and he likes him. And so he doesn't want to disrespect him, which is funny because he says, I'm not going to say anything. And then he says it all right. <laughs> Yeah. 30 seconds later. So then it comes out that Darcy's father was his godfather and a good friend of his. And he tells Elizabeth that he was the son of one of the older Darcy's employees and that he and Mr. Darcy had grown up together and that Darcy's father had left some money for him so that he could become a clergyman or pursue a career in ministry because Darcy was jealous of his father's love for Wickham. He found a loophole and refused to give Wickham the money that he was to receive. So then Elizabeth asks about Darcy's sister, who then Wickham also says is distastefully prideful. He doesn't have very good things to say about either of them. Wickham overhears Mr. Collins going on and on about this lady, Catherine. And then he tells Elizabeth that she is actually Mr. Darcy's aunt and that she hopes that Darcy will marry her daughter. And that kind of gives Elizabeth some grim satisfaction because she's like, oh, well, poor Miss Bingley, too bad. (laughs) Because, (laughs) And I think that it kind of makes her happy that Darcy is going to probably make this match with this girl who's very sickly and and he's so proud, but he's going to end up with a sickly wife anyways. So two, we've talked a lot about like 
if Mr. Darcy represents pride in this book, Elizabeth represents prejudice. Because of her bad first impression with Mr. Darcy and because he insulted her, she is willing to listen to any negative thing about him now and just kind of believe it wholeheartedly. And I think this gives us a good sense of how silly we can be sometimes with our own judgment and a bad first impression can like, now this is like self-fulfilling prophecy. She's like, oh my gosh, I knew he was so rotten to begin with. But what Elizabeth has not stopped to think about is Mr. Wickham has shown terrible manners here. This is their very first meeting. He's monopolized her time in a very private way, which first of all is kind of inappropriate for this culture and society they live in. He keeps saying, well, I shouldn't say more, but... And then he says more and he's revealed all of this in a very gossipy way, but with this kind of charm behind it. And Elizabeth has just let herself, she usually has pretty good judgment and she has let herself get sucked right into this. And I think it's because he's sharing a narrative that she wants to believe. And so it makes her more likely to listen. So I think this section here, this is where we start to see like, you know, if Darcy is pride, then Elizabeth is prejudice. Because her first impression was so poor, she's going to really struggle to rethink how she thinks about herself. Isn't she the one that kind of like prides herself on being able to read people? Yet she totally misreads Wickham. And Darcy both. And Darcy. Yeah. Yeah. And this is another one I think is interesting from this chapter too, is when they see each other in town, it says both changed color. One looked white and the other red. (laughs) <laughs> but it doesn't say which is which. So one is angry and the other one is like shocked. I've sometimes wondered hmm, who is angry and who was shocked of these two for running into each other. I just think that's a funny thing, but she doesn't specify. Can you tell later in the book? No. Like, which one would be angry? I, I have my own so. ideas about that. Yeah. yeah, because of later in the book. But what do you think, Amity? I mean, I think it's Darcy who's read. And Wickham, who's why, I mean, Wickham has, as we'll learn later, he has every reason to be terrified of Darcy. And Darcy has every reason to be extremely angry with Wickham. Of course, the picture that Wickham paints, it would be vice versa. And that's kind of why I think she leaves it off. Yeah. I almost think because at this point in the book, this is such a classic story. Like the spoiler is Darcy's the guy, right? Like we're going to end up with Darcy and we know that. But I remember reading this through the first time, having never seen a film version of it. This is like probably like early 90s. You know, this was it wasn't like a big deal to do movies and stuff with Austin yet. And I was young enough when I read it. I remember still getting to the end and thinking she didn't end up with Wickham. (laughs) (laughs) Austin's still dropping crumbs of clues. Yeah. Quite sure which way it's going to go yet, but I love this. Like one was white and one was red, but she doesn't say who's who because she doesn't want you to know which one's terrified and which one's angry yet. And Wickham paints it very much like Amity said, just the opposite of the reality. And I think how much are we affected by, yes, definitely the first impression, but also by somebody's looks. And so, yes, Darcy was handsome and wealthy and stuff, but he was so rude. So that like turned off everything. Wickham was also like, she says over and over again, he was very handsome, very attractive, very charismatic, great first impression. And so everything he says is true. But because of Darcy's bad first impression, everything he says is false. But I do think that the fact that Wickham is very attractive goes a long way with a lot of things. And even Jane is like- He's kind of a con artist. 
Yeah. Well, and later on, there's a line that says something like, there's just enough goodness for one person between them. And that one had, one has all the goodness and the other one has all the appearance of it. Yes. And I think that's very insightful. And it's like, be careful, be careful what you sort of latch on to. Well, and I think be careful of somebody who within your first conversation has a lot of negative things to say about other people. Yeah. Uh, will like seem like they're really disclosing and unearthing a lot of like personal business. Immediately. You immediately. Should, I think you should immediately be cautious. Yeah, for sure. The, it's sort of the ultimate TMI. Like didn't need to know all of that right away. Why are you trying to just completely destroy somebody's character and you don't even know who I am? So after she hears from Mr. Wickham, because up until now, she's like, Darcy's disagreeable and unpleasant and prideful. But after she hears from Mr. Wickham, she says this, I had not thought Mr. Darcy so bad as this, though I have never liked him. I had not thought so very ill of him. I had supposed him to be despising his fellow creatures in general, but did not suspect him of descending to such malicious revenge, such injustice, such inhumanity as this. So after her conversation with Wickham, it isn't just that Darcy is annoying to her, which he has been up until now. Now she sees him as something else entirely, almost more like a villain. You know, when I get back into my chapters, we'll talk about that a little bit. Like, what does it mean to be villainous in a book like this? Because they're all just like people living their lives, right? So what does it mean to be a villain in an Austin novel? So I'll get into that in a little bit. But I think that's very interesting is she goes from this like general annoyance and dislike of Darcy to suddenly she sees him as a lot more malicious and intentionally kind of cruel character. And that is going to be until the middle of the book. This is the impression now that she's gone beyond that first impression now to something much worse. He's not just rude. He's actually evil. Which makes you think like when somebody says something about somebody that's that bad to make your own decisions, like find out for yourself. You shouldn't just believe what people are saying. Yeah. And I think that you kind of get an idea over time as you start to get to know people, you go, okay, you have a tendency to sort of blow the truth out of proportion or you can take something that is true and then really make it a lot more dramatic than it actually is and sort of take some sort of strange delight in in making people look worse than they are. I don't know. You kind of get a feel for people who enjoy doing that. Then you realize, well, whatever they say, I'll just take with a grain of salt and realize the truth is probably in there, but it's probably a lot less than what they are saying. Well, and Wickham even admits to some positives about Darcy, but it's well after he's said all of this, because Elizabeth is like, can this pride ever have done many good? And he goes, well, it's led him to be liberal and generous, to give his money freely, to display hospitality, assist tenants, relieve the poor. This is what he says about Darcy. But he's then he says, but it's all because he just wants himself to look good. It's all family pride. So I think it's very interesting that once he's sure that Elizabeth thinks he's horrible, then he's like, well, he does all this too. And that all sounds pretty good. But by this point, Elizabeth can't even hear that with any degree of thinking it's about anything but serving himself. Yeah. I'm glad you brought that up because I had underlined that and started and everything because I was like, he's really constructed this whole thing to make sure that Darcy has no way out. 
that Elizabeth will never think well of him. Like she could watch him doing all these amazing and wonderful and generous things, but he's made it impossible for her to think that there's any good intention behind it, that it's all actually just completely this like grandiose gestures to make himself better and bigger. And the only reason he's a good brother also is because he just, he feels it's like his duty. He can't possibly care for Georgiana because he can't care for anybody. Keep Georgiana tucked in the back of her mind too, because she's going to be like, a much bigger player later on. 1718. So Elizabeth tells Jane the story that Wickham had told her. And Jane is like, she can't believe it. But at the same time, she's like, but I also can't disbelieve it because again, Wickham is very amiable. He's very attractive. Everybody likes him. So she's like, I can't say it's not true because look who said it. But I also have a hard time believing it is true. And a lot of that is tied back to the fact that she's has a relationship going with Bingley and Bingley and Darcy are our best friends. So she can't really believe that Bingley would tie himself to somebody who is a villain. You know, the family is invited to the promised ball at Netherfield. And this is, this is huge. And everyone is kind of funny because it, this is the money chapter is one of the longest chapters in the book too. Is <laughs> all is, there's so much to unpack here. There yeah, is. Yeah. There's so much, but I kind of love leading up to it because Everybody sort of has expectations for the ball. Jane is expecting to go and just hang out with Bingley all night and sort of strengthen that relationship. Elizabeth is really excited because she expects that Wickham is going to be there. And so this is her opportunity to really interact with him and get to know him better and spend like all evening with him. Of course, the younger girls, they are excited because the regiment is going to be there and they just, they don't really care about anybody in particular. They're just like soldiers. And I love Mary. She expected to engage in intervals of recreation and amusement. She feels like that is not a bad thing. But then they find out that Mr. Collins is planning to go and they're like, are you sure that's going to be okay? Because they like don't want him to go at all. But he's like, oh yes, I'm sure that Lady Catherine would be fine with it. And he takes that opportunity before the ball even starts to claim Elizabeth for the first two dances. And she is just like horrified, but what can she say? And it is in that moment that she realizes that like he's chosen her, that she's the one he wants to make the lady of Huntsford. How to, oh, the mistress of Huntsford is how, how she puts it. It's just horrifying. But she also realizes that her mother is very much for this. And so she knows she's going to have a battle on her hands, but she's not going to say anything about it right now because she doesn't want this big fight. The night of the ball arrives. And it's just a few days, honestly, after they're even invited to it. So it's not like this long anticipated thing. But I love how it talks about that Elizabeth dresses with more than usual care. Like she really pays careful attention to all the details. And I think That's something that I kind of love in the movie renditions is they really do focus in on that. Like she looks pretty fantastic. It's not like overdone, but she looks, she's always just like a little extra and very gorgeous, which is kind of fun. And I think that's something that anybody even today can totally relate to, whether it's prom or a special event of any sort that, that you're like, oh, I'm going to be seeing these people and I'm going to be, especially as a teenage girl, you're like, I'm going to take extra care, do my makeup extra carefully. They arrive at Netherfield 
And she discovers within just the first few minutes that Wickham is not even there. And so that probably kind of sours her entire night, like right off the bat. In fact, one of the officers comes and tells her that he's had business that has taken him to town. And he's like, I don't know if that business would be so urgent if he wasn't sort of anxious to avoid a certain somebody. So then she's just angry. She's annoyed at Bingley for being friends with Darcy. She's like, I can't talk to Darcy. I can't engage with him at all because that's sort of good. If I did that, that would be like hurting Wickham. So she's just angry and bitter and whatever. She stands up with Collins for the first two dances. It did make me wonder like how long are each of these dances? Because later on, there's a phrase that says they were standing up for half an hour together. So is it possible that a dance was like, like one dance, like 20 to 30 minutes? I don't know. I don't know. But I was like, holy moly, that's a lot of steps. Well, so isn't it too like different? Like we think of dancing right now, like in this day and age, right? Where we're like dancing with a partner, but aren't they like moving around the room? Yeah, like, they're like choreographed. Really? Yeah. Have you guys ever done like maybe the Virginia reel? That's yeah. the dance I can think of that's most likely that we've done with like a large number of couples. Depending on how many couples there are, if you do the Virginia reel long enough that everybody has a chance to go through the whole set and the whole series and run down and the music just keeps playing. It's not like it's a set song and it's over. It's like music is just playing in the background while you do it. If you had a large enough number of couples, the Virginia reel can go on for quite a long time. That's that's true. And so I think that's what it is, is it's choreographed, but it's not as if all of the steps are unique. There's a repetition to the steps yes. over and over again. And they would learn these dances. And it's probably in Elizabeth's case, there might have been like a local dancing master that several of the families would have sent their daughters to as teenagers Learning to dance is something you would do before you come out. It's part of the uh, being accomplished. Mr. Collins' idea of an accomplished woman is a little different than Mr. Darcy's. But that would have been part of being accomplished is like knowing how to dance. And so they probably did like practice a lot of these dances together. And then again, if there's a large number of couples in the set, then the music could go on quite some time. And you, you know, Laura, you've played like classical music pieces. If they were dancing to some kind of classical music piece, they can be quite lengthy. Oh and yeah. Have, like a half hour. Yeah. And so, you know, the dance may last the length of the musical number, which is more than like a three minute pop song. And it was the only really acceptable way that young people could get to know one another was through dancing. So that's why later on when Lizzie does dance with Darcy and he doesn't want to talk during the dance, it's really awkward or he doesn't know what to say. And that's the thing. She thinks he's too proud to want to talk to her. But what it probably is, is he is starting to be very intimidated by her because he likes her. Yeah. He's actually like tongue tied. And that's a good segue because so she does dance with Collins for however long it could have been like an hour. And she's finally done. And it says that when he leaves, like she's filled with ecstasy and she dances with somebody else. But then Darcy comes up and asks her to dance. And I think she's just sort of like so shocked by it that she just says yes without thinking and she's like what did I do and Charlotte is like don't mess this up you know she's like don't slight him basically just because you are attracted to Wickham this guy is like 10 times more important than Wickham you know say what you will about that but like that that was Charlotte's take on it always very practical she is extremely yeah very very practical so they do. They start to dance and it is quite awkward at first because there's just silence and she like makes a comment and then he doesn't say anything back. And so she kind of like calls him out on it because she thinks in her mind, she's like, we could be quiet and that's fine. 
but I think it'll actually sort of be more of a punishment to him if I sort of like force him to talk. <laughs> so that was like her mo whole motivation. So they do. So first they're like sort of talking about talking and then it does turn to Wickham. To me, like through the whole course of the conversation, he doesn't ever confirm or deny anything. And she's not like super clear on what she's accusing him of, except she says Wickham has been unlucky to lose your friendship in a manner which he's likely to suffer from all his life. And again, Darcy doesn't really like confirm or deny any of that, but he does say that like Wickham has the manners that will allow him to make friends easily, but he's unsure if, if he's able to actually retain friends. So it's very clear. He doesn't like Wickham. Now, Lord Lucas does come and interrupt after a point, And he's like, it is evident that you belong to the first circles. You know, he like stops them in the middle of the dance. And I don't, I don't know how unscrupulous that was, or if it was just fairly common, but it does seem extremely awkward. So the dance does end. And I think this is important because Lizzie goes over and Miss Bingley approaches her. She warns her against Wickham. Basically, she doesn't really have anything to back up her argument, except she's like, well, considering his descent, you know, so she comes across as very haughty and condescending is like, he's bad because he's of low birth, basically. And Lizzie's like, so you don't actually have anything against him except that his father was not super wealthy. Miss Bingley is like, well, I don't know all the particulars, but he's not, you know, a good egg. So Lizzie just, it's like, whatever. And then Jane had been speaking to Bingley about it. So she tells Lizzie, Bingley doesn't know everything, but he's pretty sure that Wickham is not a very honorable man. Lizzie brushes all of it aside because she's like, They've all had their accounts from Mr. Darcy, who is not exactly neutral here. And so she doesn't give any of it credence. She's just like, I think Wickham's good. Darcy's bad. The end. The rest of the ball is just one mortifying event after another. It starts with Mr. Collins just going up to Mr. Darcy and saying, hey, I know your aunt. And apparently, and Nan, maybe this is where you can give us some more context but apparently that was extremely inappropriate from what she says here like for him to just go talk to mr darcy without introduction i don't know if you like know yeah, about that but it's funny because i'm like how did anybody ever get introduced in the first place that they that's what i was wondering too i think this has to do kind of with ranking because mr darcy even though he doesn't have a title his aunt is titled and so he is of a higher social station so my understanding is for young ladies, you could never just go talk to a man. You had to wait for somebody who already knew the man to introduce you. So for girls, the rules were a little different. But even among men, if somebody was of a higher social station than you, if they were a lower social station than you, you could talk to them. But if they were a higher social station than you, same thing, you had to wait for an introduction, especially like in an environment like this. So Mr. Collins, and who's so obnoxious anyway, this is like really, really intrusive and obnoxious and not in keeping with like proper manners. And again, the Netherfield ball is going to be the most formal occasion that we've seen yet. It's the most formal occasion in the entire book. And so those rules of propriety would have been expected to be closely adhered to. And Mr. Collins is kind of, even though he's a distant cousin to her dad, he's kind of associated with their family. So yeah, yeah Darcy's going to see Mr. Collins is wrapped all up with the benefits for sure. Yeah. And I think that that's why she's just so 
embarrassed. So Collins does that. He sort of like attacks Darcy and Darcy just sort of replies with what well, sort of cold civility. The next thing is that they're sitting at dinner and Lizzie is seated sort of close to Mrs. Bennett. And the whole time Mrs. Bennett is talking very loudly to Lady Lucas about her expectations that Jane will be marrying Bingley and and all about how this is such a wonderful thing and it's going to take care of Jane and it's going to make it so that, well, it'll put her other daughters in the paths of other rich men. And it will also like relieve her of her daughters because then her daughter that's going to have so much money can take care of the girls and and be worried about them. And she's just speaking so loudly. And then somebody asks for music. And so Mary jumps up and she performs these two just awful songs. And I think that she probably would have continued to do more, but Mr. Bennett like goes over and says, you need to let other people perform. And just that whole charade is just, is just completely embarrassing the way that it's all carried out. It's not done tactfully. It's just awful. And then Kitty and Lydia keep throwing themselves at the officers that are there also. Yeah. And again, they're like, 15, 16, they're like these young teenagers that are just... And you know the punch is spiked. <laughs> I mean, that's like part of it too, is like, it's a ball, like there's going to be drinking. It's not like anybody's policing. Yeah, no, not at all. Yeah. So, And that probably makes everybody like that much crazier. And Mr. Collins makes this long speech that can be heard by everybody that's again, just makes him appear just completely annoying and ridiculous. So... Lizzie's biggest thing is she's just she just feels like everything they're doing is giving more and more ammunition to Darcy and to Bingley's sisters. And she kind of can't stand that thought. And then Mr. Collins just like clings to her all night. He's just never out of her sight. Well, she's never out of his sight. And though she doesn't so, agree to dance with him again because he's always nearby, she can't say yes to dance with anybody else. Either. Yeah. He's kind of keeping everybody else away. So the Bennets are the last to leave the dance, but the last thing, and and the Bingley sisters are just kind of trying to avoid them at all costs. But the last thing I wanted to say is that all throughout the ball, there's like these little lines that say Mr. Bennett kind of laughs or Mr. Bennett was watching and just smiling. And he did. He sort of viewed the entire evening with just amusement. Like a farce. Yeah. I thought that was really interesting. I just kind of thought this whole time that in some ways, I think Mr. Bennett is sort of the male embodiment of Jane Austen (laughs) because he, as a male, he's able to like voice all these things that she thinks, like just the absurdity of things and just thinks things are so funny and sort of giving all of us this 30,000 foot view, you know, looking down on all this from far away and going, oh my gosh. How was this even real? But it was. I think it's good to bring up to Amity because that's going to be almost a little bit of foreshadowing about Mr. Bennett is we do because of events that happen later in the book, we're going to see that Mr. Bennett begins to recognize that some of his like amused indifference to these girls. And I don't know if indifference is the right word, but more like this, just this general amusement around them and kind of leaving it up to his wife to just like take care of the girls. Right. As far as marriages and things like that go we're going to realize that Mr. Bennett kind of comes to regret some of his hands-off approach to parenting and he's going to find himself much less amused by some of the events that unfold but it is true at this moment he can't really rouse himself to think 
that anything untoward is happening in the family. He doesn't even like attempt to check his wife in some of these comments that she's making. And some of which are right in the hearing of Mr. Darcy, like the comment about, well, that's going to throw the girls into the path of other rich men. Mr. Darcy is standing quite nearby when that said this line is so great to Elizabeth it appeared that had her family made an agreement to expose themselves as much as possible during the evening it would have been impossible for them to play their parts with more spirit or finer success so even if they had planned to make a spectacle of themselves it could not have gone worse (laughs) seriously yeah yeah, I know. I, I love that last leave And the sisters are like yawning. One movie version of this portrays it as them even leaving it like it's almost dawn before they leave. It's already light before they're leaving the house. And it's that it's that Kara Knightley version. And the one Bingley sister turns and looks at her brother and says, you've got to be kidding me. And, and that's it, kind of anachronistic, like that line, the way it's worded. It's very modern. Yeah. But that's her thought as the Bennets drive away is she looks at her brother and is like, now you see, like, is this the woman that, and her family that you would want to bring into our posh London life? Like, yeah. are you kidding me? And really that part came down to, I think it was Mrs. Bennett again, who ordered the carriage to come so much later than everybody else. Like it was totally by design. On purpose. I mean, I got that picture through this, that it was like almost dawn. And these, I mean, they're just exhausted, right? Most of the sisters can like barely keep their eyes open and and Mrs. Bennett's still going strong and still playing her manipulative part. I don't know. The Bingleys are like, please go home. Like, why are you people still here? <laughs> it's so sad for Elizabeth, too, is this long looked for event. They don't get very much entertainment on this scale in the, the county they live in. They may be some of the girls, especially because they don't go to London, they maybe have never seen any kind of an event like this. It's probably the biggest thing they've ever attended. And there's all this buildup and so much looking forward to it. And she's looking her best. And then by the end of the night, she's just like, kill me now. I'm so embarrassed. It just went horrible. The one guy I wanted to see that I did all of this for is even here. And then like on some level, it's not just that she's like, what kind of impression is this going to make on Darcy and Bingley? It's not just that, although I think there's an element of that. Some of it is she's just really recognizing for herself that she's embarrassed by it. It's just this sharp juxtaposition with this actually kind of high-class family that she's really feeling it. Yeah, I think that that's totally true too. Like so often we get so used to what we're used to. And then I love the word juxtapose it with people who live differently and we go, oh. <laughs> right, <laughs> like, like the other thief of joy, right? Yeah, it is. <laughs> it is. And for her, I think it was pretty devastating. What we get in 19 is this is the day after the ball. So everybody's probably kind of like tired and exhausted and feeling really terrible. Mr. Collins first thing, and it says it's at breakfast. Breakfast is, it's probably looking more like a brunch. We're looking a little later in the morning. Everybody's slept in. And again, some portrayals of this are funny. Mom looks a little hungover in the morning. Again, the punch is probably spiked. Mom obviously indulged, right? And Mr. Collins' first line in the morning is, can I have a private audience with Elizabeth? In Regency England, that can only mean like one thing. So of course, he proposes to her. This part is funny if it wasn't so awful. One of the things this book is known for is awful proposals. And here's Elizabeth's first one. Okay. (laughs) Basically, he gives her this speech that's one of the longest paragraphs in the book so far. And he just keeps talking and talking. 
And his reasons are all back to front about why he wants to marry her. It's only near the end that he actually says anything nice about Elizabeth. It's all these practical reasons. And then as he gets near the end of his, I guess it's a proposal, but he never asks her a question. As he he gets just kind of assumes. Point, yeah. It's just, he goes on and on. On that head, I shall be uniformly silent. Oh, basically saying that she's been allowed to run a little bit wild, but she won't be after much more time. On that head, therefore, I shall be uniformly silent. You may assure yourself that no ungenerous reproach shall ever pass my lips when we are married. And then it says, it was absolutely necessary to interrupt now. She's tried to be polite. She's listened to him. She can't get a word in edgewise. And now she's like, oh, no, 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 no. You're too hasty, sir. You forget I've made no answer. <laughs> and then goes on to tell him no. And he will not take no for an answer. He keeps coming back to her. He can't imagine any reason why he'd be rejected. He's a gentleman. He's going to inherit this property. He currently has a decent job. He has a house she could set herself up in. Why on earth would she say no? Because even Mr. Collins, as obnoxious as he is, he also is a product of the society that can't countenance a woman having a strong opinion about anything. And even as she's still telling him no, and he says, I've heard that some gently bred young ladies will tell a suitor no the first time around, but the, when they really mean to say yes, and she's like, I'm not toying with your affections. And she's very much very Elizabeth here, like, oh no, I call it like I see it. This is exactly what I mean to say. And then he says, we'll go talk to your parents. When you're impressed upon by your parents of the importance of marrying me, then you'll say yes. He continues to call her charming. She's done a pretty good job of just getting short of insulting him. You know, we would never suit. I don't intend to marry. You know, like all of these things that when sanctioned by express authority of both your excellent parents, my proposals will not fail to be acceptable. So then, of course, he goes and applies to her parents about this. And the whole family gets to be in an uproar because Lizzie won't have Mr. Collins and Mr. Collins begins to say he won't have Lizzie. So he's starting to think, oh, maybe she means it. So I want to read this part because I think it's one of the most clever exchanges ever and just delightful. Mrs. Bennett goes to Mr. Bennett and she's beside herself. She's finally gotten one of these girls to get a proposal and Lizzie is saying no. Of Mr. Collins and Lizzie, Lizzie declares she will not have Mr. Collins, and Mr. Collins begins to say he will not have Lizzie. Well, what am I to do about the occasion? It seems a hopeless business, says Mr. Bennett. Well, speak to Lizzie yourself. Tell her you insist upon her marrying him. Well, let her be called down. She'll hear my opinion. So Lizzie comes down. Is it true? You've refused this offer of marriage. I have, sir. Very well. We now come to the point. Your mother insists upon you accepting. Is that not so, Mrs. Bennett? Yes or I will never see her again. Well, an unhappy alternative is before you, Elizabeth. From this day on, you must be a stranger to one of your parents. Your mother will never see you again if you do not marry Mr. Collins, and I will never see you again if you do. I laughed out loud when I read that. I was like, he is my husband, and he is brilliant. Yeah, and it's just like such... A funny line. And Elizabeth right away knows she's one. And the film portrayals of this are all very, very sweet. That she is very fearful that somehow her parents are going to force her into this. But she's very stubborn. She's had a miserable morning. She had a miserable evening. And now she's had this terrible morning. And she thinks that she is somehow going to maybe have her hand forced here. And as soon as her dad says what he does, 
there's this immediately lightening of the mood. She smiles. She feels much better because she recognizes that her dad would not truly make her do this. And again, like thinking through the ramifications of this, though, especially when Mr. Collins quits the house, they, they, he leaves, right? He's going to go stay with somebody else and he goes to stay with the Lucases. And truthfully, this is Elizabeth's decision is disastrous for their family. It, it would be different if Bingley, if they had a marriage proposal from Bingley, but none of the girls are married. She's in her early 20s. You can see socially the family is headed for a little bit of disaster because of the way they acted at the ball. It's pretty clear that nobody in this family is going to marry up, right? If anything, they're going to marry sideways or down. Her rejecting Collins, if she had been able to say yes to him, it would have secured a lot of things about their future. She's too strong-willed to do it. So very, very admirable character trait here in Lizzie, but she is deciding for far more than herself when she makes this choice. And her mother recognizes that in ways Lizzie is probably too young to see. She's not wrong, but it is a disaster. How many women over the course of centuries would have made the decision to marry him simply because they felt like it was their duty and the best thing for their family and, and everything? And in Austin's time, it would have been expected. You know, it seems like such a mild thing to say no to a proposal you don't want, but this is like glass ceiling breaking stuff here that Elizabeth opts for. Do you marry for love or money? I mean, if you had both options, which I don't think most of us nowadays do, usually have one option, right? But if you had that option in front of you, like lose everything and and find somebody else because you don't love this person or marry them and secure everything, I think that's a hard decision. And she was just like, no, I'm not doing this. Well, and I think especially in those times because husbands and wives led such separate lives, most women could opt to marry uh, for money or status and have it really impact their lives in very little ways. It wasn't yeah. even the amusements available to both men and women. Anything you read from this era really indicates that like the lower classes, the men and women would live and work together more frequently. But in that, in these kind of higher classes, like they're part of, it would have been really expected that the men and women ended up leading very separate lives. And even separate lives from their children, because even though women would have had a little more to do with the children, if you had enough money, you really just hired somebody to come to your house and take care of them. Yeah, yeah. which has always seems so tragic to me. But yeah, it's always like separate rooms, sometimes separate houses. And even sometimes the children would live in a completely separate house. And the lower classes would all live in one room. So yeah. I have a question for you guys. So I've noticed like my husband and I, we basically do everything together. Our lives are very together. And some marriages I see, I cannot, I am surprised at how separate their lives are. You rarely see them together. Or so since we're remodeling our bathroom, we go to Home Depot on the weekends, like three times a day, sometimes for like a $3 part or whatever. And that's like, been doing sprinklers at our house. It's been a lot of better head to Jerry's. All yes. <laughs> you go to Jerry's. I go, we go to Home Depot usually, but David, he's the ones working on the, on the remodel. I only help him when he needs help briefly, but he'll come downstairs and be like, want to go to Home Depot again? And I'm like, yeah. So I mean, no matter what I'm doing, I get in the car and we drive to Home Depot. Like that's just, we just do everything together. So I just want to know, like, do you guys consider your marriage as like, do you guys do everything together or do you live separate lives or is it a mix? I think at at this point in our life, it's, it's together. Maybe some people would think that it was separate just because we have like 900 million children doing 900 million things, you know? And so it's like, like to be able to be physically in the same places all the time is just like an impossibility. 
Because a lot of times it's like, okay, you drive here and pick up them there and then you drop off and then you pick up and then you run to the store and then you come back and then pick up the other kid and then go back and feed them. And then you go to this other activity and I'm going to be doing the other thing that like the same thing in the other car, you know? And so there's that, but it's all very much united and we get to as many things together as we can. We certainly work together and there's a lot. I don't know. I think it's very, I would not say that we live separate lives at all. Jeff and I are, are really, really close. I don't know. He's, he's more of a homebody than I am. I'm always looking for an excuse to be out like running errands or just being around whatever. Like doing um, stuff. Doing stuff. And I do more of the inside work. He does more of the outside work. We really like spending time together. You know, I, I've sometimes I've got one sister that like, they'll go on a big vacation. And sometimes I know in the past, occasionally they'll invite another family to come with them. And I can't, I can't imagine doing that. Like if we're able to get away, I don't want anybody with us. I just want to be with my family. Right. And so, um, which I'm feeling grateful for because we're starting this fall. We'll just have one kid at home. It'll happen one day, Amity. I know that feels like really far in the future. And I think in some ways, you know, I'm going to be sad to like have the loss of like my kids here and having stuff with my kids. But in some ways, we're also looking forward to being empty nesters just to have time with just one another and doing our own things. I look forward to cleaning the house and having it stay clean. And we definitely have a united life. You know, they talk about these enormous houses and stuff that they have that have multiple bedrooms and there's a wing of the house and different things. I can't even fathom like having a home that was so big that you could like live in the same house and not see each other. Modern life, especially with our idea of like the need for love marriages. We have to be careful about letting our feelings rule us too much. Also, I think feelings are important, but I have a really logical and practical side. Also, I think both of those things matter. I mean, honestly, if I'm any character in the book, as much as I like to think I'm Lizzie, I'm probably, I, in a lot of ways, I'm probably Charlotte. (laughs) (laughs) Not as nice as Jane. I'm not as flaky as, I'm not as flaky as the younger sisters, I aspire to be like Lizzie and in a lot of like my day-to-day life, I may be Charlotte. Amity's like Charlotte's never the heroine of a novel, but <laughs> Sanditon, the main character's name is Charlotte. So Amity, I was gonna tell you, you just your first just graduated and, and you know, it's a domino effect from here on out. It just happened so fast. They leave like one after yeah, another. We'll have a little one. Yeah, but the first four go quick. Well, I know I was thinking about that because I was like, well, really? holy moly, just in two years, we'll be doing it again with Tate. And then two years after that with, yeah. Yep. So every other totally year goes dominant effect. Yeah. So chapters 21 and 22. This book cracks me up. I should have let everybody know this. I mean, that everybody does know that listens to us, that this is my first experience with Pride and Prejudice. A hundred percent. I've never seen a movie. I've never read the book. And so. So exciting. It is. And you guys have so much more insight and whatever, like, so. I just want to put that out there because you, this is not the first time you've read this, but I am cra- I am cracking up as I'm reading this because I think it's hilarious. Elizabeth thinks maybe he'll leave because I've rejected him, but he does not. He stays as long as he said he was going to stay. Even though he's given up on Elizabeth, he, he stays until he was planning to leave. But he is now directing his attention towards Charlotte Lucas, which is interesting because in the last couple of chapters, Charlotte is kind of talking to him, listening to him, trying to like take the focus off of Elizabeth for Elizabeth, doing her a favor. Like I can, I'll talk to him. I know you don't want to. It's fine. I don't know what you want to say. Is this benefiting her or not? <laughs> I don't know yet. So one morning the Bennets are walking back to Meriton again 
And then they meet Wickham again. He's always walking down the road. And he tells them that he had purposely not gone to the ball because he was avoiding Darcy. And he walks them home. They introduce him to their parents. And that's when a letter from Caroline Bingley arrives for Jane. And she reads it and is like apparently disturbed. Everybody can tell that whatever's in this letter is very disturbing. So she takes Elizabeth upstairs and she tells her what the letter has said that I just can't even imagine. Like I used to have dreams. I I still do occasionally where like, I don't know if like my husband and I aren't married, but like I can't get a hold of him and he's disappeared and he's like not returning my phone calls. And he's like, I'm like, where did he go? Like he must. Anyways, this is like that. (laughs) She gets this letter and you know, she's been, she'd just been with him at this ball and had a great time, right? Everybody at Netherfield has left for London and they don't anticipate coming back for at least six months if ever. <laughs> can you can you even imagine? Caroline also says that she's excited to see Mr. Darcy's little sister, Georgiana, again, whom she hopes is going to marry her brother. So Jane is, of course, upset about this and doesn't want to believe that this is what's going to happen. Elizabeth explains to her that Caroline is just trying to cause trouble. She's just trying to break them up. What she wants is Darcy's little sister to marry her brother so she can move in on Darcy. She thinks that might up-level her or something. But Elizabeth does manage to convince Jane that Bingley does really like her. I mean, I can't imagine getting a letter like that. Like, he's gone for six months, maybe more, no notice. Well, especially in that date and time when it was like, there was no communication other than letters. There was, it was like, oh, he's, no, like he's gone. We're not, we're not going to connect in any way unless he like writes me. Yeah. How but she doesn't know where he lives in London. So she doesn't have any way to communicate with him. And it would probably be a little bit forward and inappropriate for her to reach out to him at all anyway. So one of the things I've tried to do too, is see like, it's kind of indicates they went to London like for what they call the season, right? Which is like when like Parliament would have been on. But I feel like the season, depending on which book and which author you read, the season feels like it's a bit of a moving target. Yeah. Like my impression is that it's sort of like February until it gets too warm in the summertime almost is when the real season was supposed to be because that's when Parliament met. So they actually went to town a little bit early. They probably had instead intended to stay in the country through Christmas originally. Because the Netherfield Ball, we know, is in November. And then all of a sudden, they quit this beautiful country house and go back to London right before Christmas, which probably was not the original intention. And we'll find out later that it's probably Darcy and the Bingley sisters' influence that's like, we should just go back to town. Because I think they are worried that um, Bingley is getting too attached to Jane. And so it is kind of an unusual time for them to decide to, like, take off and go it's a little bit unseasonable and for them to say they're not going to come back for six months basically means they intend to stay in London until like the season is over which by Elizabeth's own admission like they never go to London her father hates London so they've never really done like the London season even though they would be eligible to do so just for their social status but it's not going to happen like, like I said, Charlotte Lucas has been kind of entertaining Mr. Collins. So they've kind of built up this relationship. So one morning he sneaks out to her house and he again offers this really long-winded proposal. He's like the king of long-winded speeches, <laughs> which is, I guess, why you say she, he should be with Mary, right? So she sees his faults, 
but she also feels like she wants to marry for stability. So she accepts and her parents are thrilled. So Charlotte goes to the Bennett because it means they're going to inherit Longburn one day. Like that's the other thing. She'll leave for a while, but when Mr. Bennett dies, their daughter's going to come back to town. I know. And I think that's kind of funny. Like they're thrilled and she goes, you know, she's about to go over to the Bennett's and tell sort of tell them. She tells Elizabeth, Elizabeth, I don't know. It would be weird. Cause she's like, I didn't want him, but like now you're saying you're moving in on my property. Like that's kind of weird. So she goes to the Bennett's in the morning and tells Elizabeth privately about her engagement. And she also mentions while she's telling her that she wants a comfortable life. And that's why she accepted. Elizabeth is shocked, but she also tells Charlotte that she wants her to be happy. And then after that conversation, Elizabeth is disappointed in Charlotte, like feels that she's humiliating herself by what she says is she has sacrificed every better feeling to worldly advantage. I guess she's doing the opposite of what Elizabeth wants, right? Elizabeth wants happiness and love. And she thinks that Charlotte is sacrificing that for stability. She doesn't approve. That chance in marriage again. I'm convinced that my chance of happiness with him is as fair as most people can boast in entering marriage. Just because somebody is like wealthier seems a little better. Like since it's all an arrangement anyway, why does it matter if I pick him versus somebody else? Yeah, she would be older than Mr. Collins too. Kind of a couple of years. Huh? She's 27, right? Yeah, I guess I hadn't thought about that before, but that's true. 25 and she's 27 or 28. Yeah. Part of this paragraph in here that I was telling you earlier, I was just like, it would be awful. <laughs> it would be awful to feel like you have no options. So right here, it sort of goes into her mind a little bit, I think. Because it says, Mr. Collins, to be sure, was neither sensible nor agreeable. His society was irksome and his attachment to her must be imaginary, which it was because he proposes to Charlotte like two days after he'd proposed to, or maybe even a day, I don't know, uh, after he'd proposed to Elizabeth. And so he's very just like, wife, 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 I don't care who, I don't care what, I just, you know, need a wife. It says, but still he would be her husband without thinking highly either of men or matrimony. Marriage had always been her object. It was the only provision for well-educated young women of small fortune and however uncertain of giving happiness must be their pleasantest preservative from want. It's like, again, it's her only option. She's well-educated. She's somebody who has a little bit of money. And so she can't go into you know, servitude or something. And she wouldn't probably wouldn't want to do that anyway. So it is her only option. So to feel like it's just a business transaction more than anything. I don't know. Like I said, maybe you just get used to that idea. You know, I've told you that I love the 1995 version uh, with Colin Firth and Jennifer L. And I remember watching it for the first time and getting to this part and you just sort of like feel this rage with it. (laughs) But they're so polite. They like, you know, Lizzie doesn't say anything to Charlotte. And Charlotte is just like, she like quotes the book verbatim. She's like, I've never been romantic. You know, I only require a comfortable home and this is going to be just fine. And you're just like kind of screaming within yourself. Say something, Lizzie. And like, Charlotte, are you serious? Like, that's all you have to say about that? So I I did like watch the clip from the Keira Knightley version and I found it to maybe be a little bit more satisfying just because they kind of yell at each other. They kind of yell at each other a little bit. And Lizzie's like, what are you doing? He's ridiculous. Charlotte is like, 
don't judge me. Don't judge me, Lizzie. <laughs> this is, this is my option. And like, this is what I have to do. So don't judge me. So <laughs> I just remember a few, several years ago, I had a conversation with my mother-in-law because within our own, like Latter-day Saint culture, marriage is, is emphasized. Right. And I think it used to be more so I know like when I was growing up, it was really seen as like the be all and end all so much that like when I was 22 and not married, I felt panicky, which sounds so funny to me now. I was like a child, right? <laughs> 22, 23. I'm like, and you guys were married by then, right? I had almost three kids. There you go. And, and most of my friends were married. And then I eventually I did get married. And I remember years later having a conversation with my mother-in-law saying that sometimes I wasn't sure how I felt about that emphasis on marriage. She's like, well, how else will we like encourage people to form families? I said, I don't disagree that marriage is important. I said, what, what is hard is that if we emphasize this too much with young girls, because we largely still live in a culture where the men do the choosing for all the ways that like women have made strides or whatever. And I think the reason we're in a culture where men do the choosing is we still have more women who want to get married than men who want to get married. So as long as that imbalance is in place, men will always get to do the picking. Mm -hmm. And I said, my concern is creating expectations within a girl that are largely outside of her control. And I said, what I would want for any young person, and maybe especially for young women, is to feel like they're in charge in their lives. And I know once um, I asked my dad, because he's coming from a very conservative place, like, an, like a different time, different culture. I said, why was it so important for you that your, your daughters went to college, right? Because that was always emphasized to us growing up. And he said, well, he said, I've seen too many women make bad choices about their partners because they're worried that they won't eat. And he said, I never, ever wanted my girls to be in a situation where they felt like their only option was to accept a man. Coming from where my dad grew up and the kind of person he is, that that was really, really powerful. Yeah, for real. So I think as we work with young people and young girls and all of these things, even while we talk about the joy of marriage and family, and I, I do hope that people form families. I think there's a lot of joy to be had in family life. I think we also have to remember that we should not imply to any person that they're worth only comes from whether or not they're able to be married and have children. Because as soon as we do that, especially for girls, we're creating conditions whereby if that is not a choice they get to make in their life, then they feel like they, they're second-class citizens, especially within our culture. And so that was in that conversation I had with my mother-in-law, I was nine children and like lots of grandchildren and just family life was everything to her. And, and she's wonderful, right? But I said, I just get nervous about implying to our, to our girls that their value only lies in whether or not they're able to be married because a lot of girls will not be able to be, even if they really, really want to be. And they need to know that who they are and their own choices are still valuable. And I will, I feel like Jane Austen taught me that, you know, this woman writing from the early 1800s is the powerlessness of these women. And she does it with, with wit and humor and tenderness. And she treats every one of her characters as if she loves them. Even, yeah. even the villainous ones, you can see that she has a lot of care and affection for these characters. But Charlotte, I think, is a perfect example of women who end up with no good options. And then that's what they have to choose. But then she does also say to Elizabeth, she says, why should you be surprised? Do you think it's incredible that Mr. Collins should be able to procure any woman's good opinion because he was not so happy as to succeed with you? 
So just because you didn't want him doesn't mean he's not worthy of somebody wanting him. And I like even in the beginning, I think Charlotte, even as difficult as she knows her husband is going to be once she's engaged to him, she does show some loyalty. Charlotte's kind of impressive. I know when I was young she and I really read her, is. she was kind of a milk toast. Like she was kind of just like, well, that's why she's a side character. And but she's got kind of a core of steel about her, I think. I think so. And just always being the voice of reason and everything else and practicality, which is needed because I think it brings all of us who are reading it almost, you know, well, not almost, but 200 years later, she kind of grounds us and helps us to see what the reality was for them. We all know that Charlotte's engaged. Elizabeth knows that Charlotte's engaged, but the rest of the Bennets don't. And so Lord Lucas actually comes and spills the beans and Mrs. Bennett is just <laughs> beside herself. They don't even believe him at first. They're like, uh, no, he wants to marry Lizzie. And so Lizzie does jump in and she sort of corroborates the story because I don't think she feels like it's really her business at first. And so this sort of throws Mrs. Bennett into this weird funk where she is just grumpy. She's pretty sure that Charlotte and Mr. Collins will never be happy. She doesn't want them to be happy. And she's just angry at Elizabeth. Like she'll get after her every time she sees her and it'll take like a month for her to really like simmer down. But considering that she told Elizabeth that she would never talk to her again, a month is not that long. So fine. Elizabeth's probably going to be grateful for it. I know. I know. Seriously. Well, and so, then when she's like, and I'll have to watch Charlotte Lucas come in and take my house. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. And you do have to. such gloomy thoughts. Let's hope for better things. Maybe I'll be the survivor, right? Like maybe, maybe he'll die. And that's, I love that too, because poor Mr. Bennett, this whole time, that's like all everybody is obsessed with. They're like, he's going to come in and turn us out and our girls will be out on their ear and it's going to, you know, it's going to be horrible. And Mr. Bennett's just over there going, so you're just assuming I'm going to (laughs) die. Thanks for that. We do find out that it does seem like Mr. Bingley and his sisters are going to remain in London for an indefinite amount of time. And so that's, this all happens pretty quickly. He did leave. He went back to Huntsford and then he came back and stayed with the Bennets sort of while they're doing wedding preparations and stuff. Well, he has to stay with the Bennets because he can't really properly stay with the Lucases because he's engaged to their daughter. Right. And Mrs. Bennett is super annoyed by that because, and I love this. It's like, it says lovers were of all people, the most disagreeable. And okay. That's like, it's a universal truth and it carries on through time. The last thing I wanted to point out was how sort of the strain between Elizabeth and Charlotte, we kind of talked about it before, but it says that there was a restraint which kept them mutually silent on the subject of the marriage Elizabeth felt persuaded that no real confidence could ever subsist between them again. That's kind of sad, but you can kind of see in a way, maybe she felt a little bit betrayed. And also, like you pointed out, like, she's like, okay, well, so you're going to marry this guy and you're going to come live in my house. That's kind of weird. Charlotte was extremely practical and she wasn't, she wasn't thinking of it at all as kicking the Bennets out. It was like, I need to take care of myself here, but. And her family. Well, and I, you know, I think the, all the Bennets just kind of, besides that marriage, they kind of all fall into a funk because Mrs. Bennett had thought before the winter was out, she was going to have two engaged, if not married daughters. Mm-hmm. And now she has none and no prospects. And Elizabeth, as part of this funk, she becomes increasingly convinced that Bingley is being kept away by his sisters and by Mr. Darcy. 
Like that's the other thing. She doesn't actually hold Bingley responsible. Bingley's kind of like a big puppy. Like he's a sweetheart and he kind of will just like follow people around, but he doesn't have much mind of his own. And And Elizabeth doesn't fault him for staying away. She faults his friends and his family. Yeah. Which they always are talking about how kind and lovely and, and amiable and wonderful he is. And you're like, okay, but also he needs a backbone. (laughs) Not very respectable. So yeah, he's very influenced by his friends and people around him. Okay. Lots of good stuff. So my only couple of sticky notes that I ended up skipping, you guys probably see me like pulling them out of my book. As I, like, I love it. Um, because then I know if I covered stuff. So one thing during the proposal, also, I should have brought this back up in 18, is when Mr. Collins says to Elizabeth, I shall speak to Lady Catherine in the very highest terms of your modesty, economy, and other amiable qualifications. Again, thinking about this idea, I thought it was kind of funny last week, this idea of an accomplished woman. That's been in my head a lot this week Mm as I've been thinking about that. So in Mr. Collins' mind, what makes an accomplished woman is that she's modest and economical and amiable. He's a clergyman, so that would make a lot of sense that he's looking for that in a wife. I think he's projecting. I don't necessarily think Elizabeth is those things. I think that he wants her to be those things. And so he says that she's those things. Yeah. He's seeing what he wants to see. So it's kind of an interesting, but I think Charlotte very much could be described in those terms. And so in that way, she is a good wife for him. And I think as we go through, that's going to be a thing that's in the back of my mind is all these different people are going to have in their mind what it looks like to be an accomplished woman. But what does that really mean? And how can we think about that a little differently? The other one I wanted to bring up because the next section we're going to go into, um, I think we'll get the introduction of Lady Catherine de Bourgh, who's probably the closest thing we have to like a villain in the novel, I would say in some ways. So as we think about Austin years ago, there was a woman who wrote a memoir about teaching Western literature in Tehran, Iran. Hmm. It's called Reading Lolita in Tehran. She talks about, it's basically when like the revolution comes to Iran and how like Western education was frowned on. And she had to clandestinely meet with this group of women who would all show up at her door in their burqas. And as soon as they got in the house, they'd shed them and they all Hmm. looked different underneath because when she had taught these same women at university, she'd only ever seen their eyes. But when they came to her house and weren't in public, they were able to kind of shed these layers. And she talks about reading Western literature with them. One of the novels they read is Pride and Prejudice. I loved hearing about it from like a literature professor's viewpoint, especially reading that literature with a very different culture. Yeah. The things that she talked about in that book is that when we read Austen, who we recognize as villains, we kind of look at them in two ways. First of all, they're people who lack empathy for others. So they aren't necessarily like your Voldemort types where they're out to like take over the world or whatever. Destroy the world, yeah. They're, they're in fact, in, in a lot of ways, like Catherine Berg, they're more interested in maintaining the status quo than anything else. And in that sense, that makes them foils or villains for Austin's characters who are very much trying to not just live the status quo. Other way that we might see them is they might, if they're not lacking in empathy, they might just have total indifference to other people, whether it's their suffering or what they want out of life. And it may also, foils for Austin's main characters might also be people who lack self-awareness. So Bingley's sisters, in this sense, are going to be kind of villainous because they lack a lot of empathy for Jane or they're indifferent to them. You know, we think of characters who are trying to stop the protagonist from getting what she wants. That would also be characters who are lacking some self-awareness because even 
Jane and Lizzie's own mom, as much as she wants them to have this through her own lack of self-awareness, she's putting a lot of barriers in their path to these girls getting what they want, even if it's totally unintentional. I think as we go into thinking about Catherine de Berg and why she's villainous, she's going to be more along this line of like lacking empathy. She's very much going to want to put barriers in the path of Elizabeth's happiness. And she's the closest thing we probably have to a villain in the book, as we think about an antagonist versus a protagonist. And as we think about conflicts within the novel, it's very much like Lizzie versus the society in which she lives is where the main source of conflict is coming from. So I think that's kind of going to be important as we go into our next 10 chapters. The only other thing I wanted to say too, thinking about other like kind of pop culture things that are a result of writing prejudice. So there's the lake house that I brought up earlier. It's kind of a persuasion homage. The movie Clueless from the 90s is Emma. One thing, in fact, I was going to kind of bring that up as we were talking about Bingley, is that every portrayal of the Bingley character is he's just sort of like this airhead. He's a puppy. (laughs) He's like super likable, super sweet. Easily distracted. Easily (laughs) distracted. Squirrel. Back to London. Okay. She doesn't really like you anyway. Okay. (laughs) Okay. A little space case in a lot of ways, so. I can't wait till we're done with this. I'm going to sit down and watch all the versions. <laughs> I think this one should make the list for sure. Yes, I got it. I wrote it down. I'm able to get my kids to watch. So next week, if your book is divided into books, we're going to do book two, chapters one through 10. But if it's just the chapters are numbered, it'll be chapters 24 through 33. So the problem is my chapters are in Roman numerals. So I'm having to reconfigure like... <laughs> After 20, I knew what that was, two X's. <laughs> once we get towards the 50s, it's going to get funky. <laughs> You're dealing that's, with the L's and everything. I think that's how A Tale of Two Cities was for me. They were in Roman numerals and I was confused. Well, the good preview going into this is right at the beginning of chapter 24. One of the first lines is, hope was over, entirely over. <laughs> so we're we're entering the low point. We've had the high, yeah. the ball is the... The ball is kind of our first climax point as we think about rising action in the story. And now we're going to slump. Amity, what are you reading? So I actually hesitate to even share this because (laughs) if you end up reading it, you'll be like, oh my. But it's one that I like saw rave reviews about everywhere. So it's like, okay. And it was World War II. And I need to like probably do another time period. Because maybe I've read all the really good World War II books. <laughs> Anyways, so it's called The Things We Leave Unfinished. And I would have been totally happy to leave this one unfinished, complete, like, if I'm completely <laughs> honest, but I'm not a quitter. So <laughs> I did finish it. And I just, I can't really recommend it. Like I said, I'd seen rave reviews about it. Everybody's like, it just made me sob. I didn't see that twist coming. I was like... I totally saw that twist coming and it was just very like kind of predictable. I, yes, it was historical. It's historical fiction, but I love the stuff that really dives deep where everything is true. They just insert a couple of historical, like uh, fictional characters. Do you know what I'm saying? This one, it was very light on the history, very, very light on the history and very heavy on the romance and the lovemaking and it was like okay I didn't love it I didn't even like it actually I guess Uh, we have to have those every once in a while to help us go what do I really love not that yeah maybe you need a break from world war ii (laughs) 
I've read several books in recent months by Catherine Center, who I really like, and I'm liking her more all the time. But the one I just finished was a little fluffier. It's called The Bodyguard. Other ones I've read by Catherine Center, I like. Depending on who her characters are, though, sometimes her her like intimacy stuff isn't too descriptive, which I really do like because it's more modern. And there, she's always got a love story. But sometimes, depending on who her characters are, sometimes there's more language than others times. But I like I like her pretty well. I've read several of her books over recent weeks, and so I just finished The Bodyguard by Catherine Center. I've also my science fiction pick of the week are the Murderbot Diaries. I didn't love those. You didn't love those? No, but a lot of people do. A lot of people do. I read the I've read the first three of them now. I don't know if I'll continue with the series or not, but it's just I feel like it's like Pride and Prejudice in that there's this wonderful tone in the book that the author it feels so effortless, but you know the author just labored over every sentence to get murder bots. It's kind of told first person point of view from like a robot that's becoming more and more self-aware just their tone about how they feel towards humans, but they, they're programmed to protect humans, but they kind of hate humans at the same time. So it's just, it's funny. It's just a very snarky voice. And I did finish Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes by mm-hmm. Suzanne Collins. It's brilliant. We just, it's just really hard to read a book about a character you hate so much, but we don't ever get like a really full backstory on why the villains become villains. And Suzanne Collins draws a really direct line there. And I think if you're fans of the Hunger Games, a prequel is really hard to write. After you've written like a big book series, it's really famous. But she has somehow managed to write a prequel that feels like it was written before because she draws such clear lines between what happened in the past and how we ended up in the Hunger Games to where they got to. It's quite brilliant, but it was disturbing. So. I mean, if you're a huge fan of the Hunger Games, I think it's worth it because there's all these Easter eggs that like, oh, that's because of this, right? Yeah. But if you're not, I don't see it having a lot of merit. Cool. You're making you're making me want to read that. I, I should. Because especially since I told you this week, the movie's coming out. So yeah. So I'm reading Remarkably Bright Creatures by Shelby Van Pelt. I'm loving it. Have you read it? Well, I, I read half of it and then my subscription ran out. And then I had to get back in line for it. And then I had to wait again. So I need to, I I read the first half of it. I'm trying to figure out how the relationship, like, that's at what point. Yeah. I I loved it. I was like surprised how much I loved it. Yes. And I kind of love the octopus. I think the octopus has (laughs) that same kind of snarky face that's like, I can't decide if I really like humans or not. Which is funny, like, when you were talking about the murder bots, I was like, yeah, that's kind of how the octopus is. Murder bots. Yes. And he's hilarious. And, like, so, yeah, now we know. I'm at the point where, like, now I know that they're connected biologically. And I'm like, how? I'm really liking it. I got to about the point where the kid had just rolled that old ancient RV into town. Oh, okay. Yeah. Like, so I'm about the halfway point. I'm just to the point where our settings are going to finally coincide. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But yeah. Oh, so good. And like, I wouldn't have picked it up if Amity hadn't liked it because I was like an octopus. I don't know if I can do this, but it's so small and it is really kind of interesting and entertaining when what he does say. Yeah. It really, yeah. I think that it is also just brilliantly done. And so. how he gets, out of, the, She's gets out of the enclosure. Like, it's very funny. 
Anyway. I, I'm finding that I like books about, I like it when authors are writing books about older people. Because I know. Like they don't, that's a viewpoint that's not explored as often because literature about young adults sells so hot, you know, so that's like a lot of what they tell. Um, and I just think, I just love that perspective. Like it's really, like the one book we read about the really old lady and the boy with autism who died. Like she was like almost a hundred years old and like, mm. it was really interesting to like read her character. Something really funny. So <clears throat> at church we have in the, in the back, like, so we have like the pews and then we have chairs in the back in the front row of the back, a lot of widows sit together. Okay. Mm -hmm. So this is like long line of, of widows, a friend and I, Barbara Neal and I go visit every Wednesday. We go, we pick somebody that we feel like needs a visit and we go visit them. Well, we went and visited a lady this week who was like telling us one of the guys that sits on the front row, he's like 93 or 94, has a crush on another lady that's like 80 something. And like, I, my mouth almost dropped open. And I was like, I was like, that would be the a most amazing novel is like, the story behind all those people that sit in that row seriously and like how their <laughs> their life was where they got to where they are and their relationships with each other now yeah oh my gosh laura yeah so nan awesome i am not a writer but you should write this book <laughs> it just it cracked me up and i was like okay i there's no way this lady knows that this guy has a crush on her and I think it's the cutest, funniest thing I've ever heard. That is really, really funny. My So my grandma, she just turned 96. But my grandpa has been gone for over 16 years now. She was living on her own in St. George for a long time uh, after my grandpa passed away. She's just this lovely older woman that just takes such good care of herself. And she's just so gracious and just wonderful. And there was this older man in the neighborhood that was like pursuing her hot and heavy. <laughs> she was like... Like she totally knew that he was. She's like, um, there's never anybody for me but Gary, my grandpa. So she's like, sorry. So he can come to my house and we can have dinner together or something, but nothing more than that. So I just thought it was so funny. Anyway, it's cute. That is funny. So that yeah. book is called The One in a Million Boy by Monica okay. Wood. One in a million, yeah, not million dollar. I knew that didn't feel right. Yeah. Amity, you would love that book. Hey, I've heard it recommended several times now. So cool. Okay. Yeah, it's it's really good. We're so happy you joined us for this episode. We hope you will join us next week as we discuss chapters 24 to 33 of Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice. If you have suggestions for books we should read and discuss, please email us at thebestbookspodcast at gmail.com. We would love it if you would leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts and share a podcast with your friends. We want to inspire and encourage as many people as we can to read out of the best books. As Thoreau says, read the best books first or you may not have a chance to read that at all. See you next week. <laughs>